Welcome to Write Medicine, where we explore best practices in creating continuing education content for health professionals. I'm Alex Housen, and I'm on a mission to share expert insights and field perspectives on topics like adult learning, content creation techniques, effective formats, and trends in healthcare that influence the type of continuing education content that we create. Write Medicine is the premier podcast for CME CPD professionals like you wherever you are in the content creation process. Join us. Even if you are someone who doesn't necessarily think about gender and sex all the time, it doesn't necessarily preclude you from becoming part of the conversation and doesn't necessarily mean that someone is going to immediately police you for trying Have you ever wondered how biases in medical research and education can significantly impact women's health and health in the LGBTQ plus community? Do you want to learn how you as a CME and CPD professional can promote inclusive and equitable language in your work and why this is important in CME content creation? My guest today is Caitlin Tyvey, a physical therapist, medical writer and femtech pioneer. In today's episode, we explore the lack of focus on women's health and LGBTQ plus health in research, education, and ultimately in clinical practice. Caitlin shares where harm has been done to women and queer patients through exclusion and bias in everything from clinical trials to medical curricula and terminology. We talk about concrete ways CME professionals can help propel a shift toward more inclusive and equitable education and ultimately patient care. We explore the real-world consequences of biases in research and education, such as the underdiagnosis of heart attacks in women and the mismanagement of endometriosis. This episode is a call to action for us as CME CPD professionals to embrace inclusivity and equity in our work. And at the end of today's episode, I'll share three steps you can take to implement what you heard. Well, I'm here with Caitlin Tyvey, who is a physical therapist and a medical writer. And so how in your, in your practice as a, as a provider and as a researcher and as a writer, how do you see some of the biases in research impacting or affecting the health of the groups that we're talking about here in terms of, you know, you mentioned communication, patient provider communication, the beliefs that providers might hold in terms of the actual care that people receive in terms of how people experience and take care of their own bodies? Yeah, it's a great question. It's something that I see all the time, probably because I'm more tuned into this area than than the average person, but it is ever present. And there's a lot of mounting evidence for the way the biases in data and in medical training affect women and queer folks in all realms of medicine. So a great example is in 2013, the FDA mandated that the makers of Ambien and other medications like it needed to change the dosage that they recommended for women 
because the studies, the safety studies that those groups did initially only involved male participants. And it turned out that the dosage was about twice as high for the average woman as it needed to be. And so there were cases of women falling asleep, driving to work the next morning because they were still drowsy from their medication. So there's very clear safety concerns. Women are less likely to be diagnosed with a heart attack the first go around because Hmm. heart attack and cardiovascular events present differently in female body people than in males. Women are less likely to receive TPA, a life-saving medication in stroke, for stroke, because of the way the diagnostics are run for women and men. So there's mounting evidence in all these different areas. And in my clinical practice as a pelvic health physical therapist, I work with a lot of women because of the work I do. It's people of all genders, but I see probably more than half of a caseload is typically female. And I see this bias all the time because one area that's a great example in my work is endometriosis. Uh, it's a condition that is really close to my heart and is very poorly understood and managed uh, at this time. And but to our best of our knowledge, about one in 10 people with uteruses have endometriosis. Symptoms can present very widely and very differently. And there's mounting evidence that it may be even higher than one in 10. It takes a long time to get diagnosed seven to 10 years for the average person in the best case to receive an endo diagnosis. And I don't know if you know this stat already, but if you had to guess, based on the fact that 10% of females have endometriosis, if you had to guess how much the NIH, how much of its budget was allocated to endometriosis research in their last funding uh, cycle, what would you guess? You don't know. I'm guessing under 1%. (laughs) This is 0.038% of their budget went to endometriosis. So there's a huge disparity between the number of people living the condition and the amount of funding going towards it to research it. So I see that all the time. I also see cases in which other physical therapists are, our education is very insufficient to address conditions that affect female bodied people. We have very little training, surprisingly, in how to manage someone who is pregnant in, uh, at least in our entry level education as DPTs. Okay. Orthopedic specialists, and that was my initial training. I specialize in orthopedics. We see predominantly people with low back pain. If they're not coming in for low back pain as their problem, they probably still have it as a secondary problem. It's extraordinarily common, but we're never taught in our entry level education to think about the impact of the pelvic muscles, the, the vaginal muscles, the muscles that surround and control the penis, the, the sexual function muscles that we think of them. We're never thought to think about how those might affect someone with low back pain or hip pain. And I still remember a case years ago of a woman I was treating with this really persistent hip pain and it wasn't getting better and we weren't getting anywhere. I missed her pelvic floor dysfunction because I wasn't thinking about it. I was thinking about her as an orthopedic hip case and not as a pelvic floor case. And I'm grateful to say that I've, I've learned <laughs> and I've gotten better about thinking more holistically. But there are so many providers that are afraid to think about this area of the body or aren't encouraged to because it's, it's oh, oh, it's women's domain. It's, oh, oh that's, that's only for the women's health providers. That's only for the people that specialize in that. No, it's not. It affects anybody that comes into you that has this anatomy and it can affect all areas of their body, even if you aren't specializing in women's health. 
So there's a lot of missing pieces in terms of the conditions that we have information on and how we treat people who maybe we aren't even seeing for a women's health condition, how it might be impacting their overall health. Hope that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so interesting. There's a lot of things in there. And yeah, everybody's got a pelvic floor, right? Exactly. <laughs> you know, and it and it's and as I hear you kind of reel off the the statistics, first of all, the the Ambien case, I mean, it's got to be the case that pretty much every medication that's been through a clinical trial is going to have dosing implications because Definitely. the majority of patients, especially, uh, you know, medications that have been on the market for a long time yeah. are now done generic and, and all those kinds of things. And that's, that's somewhat dispiriting. Totally. Second, you know, I didn't know that statistic on endometriosis, mm -hmm. but I guessed under 1% because, you know, there's a pattern mm -hmm. in terms, you know, a long historical pattern in terms of first, how women's bodies uh, have been the focus of not so much medical research, but, you know, historically, this starting ground for trying out all sorts of things that subsequently became known as toxic yes. or <laughs> fruitless or, and also the, the bodies of Black and Hispanic and mm -hmm. other marginalized groups. So that's the second kind of dispiriting dispiriting thing. But what I do find uplifting in what you're talking about is that there are providers like you who are starting to think about how to shift practice. Now, some of that comes from personal values. Some of that comes from being exposed to different types of education. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about, you know, the role that particularly continuing education plays mm -hmm. and can play in starting to shift this narrative away from women's health, queer folks' health is something that somebody else should be paying attention to. Yeah. It's not my job. Exactly. <laughs> I love that you said that because I can't tell you how many times I've heard some variation of it's not my job, maybe in, in nicer terms, but you definitely hear that. Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, Alex, I think CME creators and writers probably have the opportunity to influence the way practice changes more than any other medical communicator or even medical educator that I can think of. The people that are developing the content and creating it from the mm -hmm. ground up have the most potential to influence it. So I was really excited to talk about this with you because so many, the, so many of your listeners are, are working in CME. Yeah. I think that at the moment, and I, I would love to get to a point in my lifetime where this changes, but at the moment, most American medical schools and other allied health training programs do not require or include substantial training in gender or sex-specific medicine. It's literally just in the last year that conversations about including sex as a biological variable in research are becoming more frequent. The NIH is pushing initiatives in that direction to require more researchers to consider how sex could influence their results. And more researchers are being required to justify if they're only using male subjects, either human patients or, or animal subjects, they need to justify why, and they need to have good reasons why that they're, cho they're choosing that. But that's going to take a while to come into practice. We were talking about earlier, at least a decade for this to get down into the medical schools and even longer for it to get to the providers who are already in practice. 
So I think CME writers have a lot of potential to be essentially agents of change in this area because we're going to be filling in the gaps that are left behind by traditional medical education. And when I completed my doctorate in 2016, during my the course of my training, we received four hours total in that entire three-year period of education on specific women's health-related issues. And this was really just in terms of pelvic floor issues. It didn't even consider things like, hmm, how could a heart attack look different? Or, hmm, how might yeah. this autoimmune condition present differently in a female person? Medical schools are much the same. So mm-hmm. CME writers have the potential to create content that does consider sex as a biological variable from the very beginning and highlights these differences. They also have the opportunity to highlight the differences in care for queer folks. We didn't receive a single piece of training around the specifics of caring for the trans population or for someone who might be identifying as as gay, for example, and what potential variations in their risk for diseases could be. None of none of that was included in my education. And this was less than was less than a decade ago. Mm-hmm. Though you think about your providers who've been practicing for 30 years, even less. Mm-hmm. So filling in those gaps, I think, is there's a huge potential for writers to engage. And I think that there's a lot of thirst for that information. There was a study I was just reading that came out in 2022 that when interviewing primary care providers, there's generally a lot of openness and interest in learning how to care for, for example, the LGBTQ population. But there's very little time, few resources, and most are not prepared. Most clinics are not prepared to implement the changes that are necessary, even if the provider has it in their brain. So there's a lot of lucrative potential for writers to to jump into this space. And I, we might talk about that a little bit more about you know getting funding for this type of research and writing, but there's a lot of space for it. And right now it's not being filled. And the one other point I think I can make about that is that the average full-time practitioner is not reading medical journals very often. <laughs> yeah. Even people like me who I'm a nerd, I love reading journal articles and I love looking at the literature. When I was practicing full-time, no way. I got maybe one article a quarter, maybe a one a month if I was lucky. There just isn't time. So the average practitioner is taking what they learn in a CME course, which might not be primary mm-hmm. literature, but should be as close to it as possible. And they're taking that back into practice. So what you're writing as a CME writer is more likely to make it back into their clinic than any research that's just been published in Nature or Cell or any other journal. I hope that helps. Yeah, that's a really that's a really interesting point. Uh, well, I guess there's a couple of things there. One is one is the power of continuing education. Yeah, whether we're talking about continuing education for physicians or physical therapists or n- yeah. nurses, and it's certainly one thing that a lot of writers who work in this space don't necessarily that you know they don't necessarily see the end product yep. all the time or are part of that you know, the outcomes reporting and closing the loop. And so they're, they don't get to see who benefited, how they benefited. And I think we might come back to that because I know as, as a provider, you know, you've participated in in CE, so you might have something to say about that. But I think the other thing in terms of what you were saying is, and you kind of touched on it, you know, who's driving the direction of CME, Mm -hmm. you know, it's often not the writers. Mm -hmm. 
And so that question of the extent to which writers can be agents of change, I think is a really kind of critical question, but also one that a lot of writers are going to think that they don't actually have much control over because they're not the ones seeking the funding for CME or Mm -hmm. CE. Although they may play a strategic role in helping to kind of create the framework for that ask in the needs assessments work that they do and so on. And then the second part of that funding piece is, you know, a lot of the time, depending on who the CME provider is, depending on who their members and learners are, but a lot of the time, the education content is tied to, is there a therapy in the space? Mm -hmm. Is there a medication? Is there a device? Totally. That's not always the case. That's a proportion of funding for CME. It's something, it's under 30%, -hmm. uh, according to ACCME's 2022 analysis of funding figures. But anyway, that's a very long-winded way of saying, you know, okay, so the funding kind of drives content to some extent. Yeah. So I wonder what your perspective on on that is, because it's not that there isn't funding available Mm -hmm. necessarily, but that it's it's going to be in particular places it's going to be attached to particular things totally yeah that it's a really great point because i think and there's definitely a difference i think between the types of writing that people are doing and i think as a as a freelancer myself i have a little bit more flexibility maybe than someone who works in an agency or someone who's working in a more regulated space i mean fentech where i specialize in is barely regulated at this point it will be and more in the future but we have a lot of free reign and a lot of ability to offer inputs um, in how we design education, things like this. But even for someone that I think is in a more restricted environment where they're, they're being told from the top down, you know, what needs to be written and exactly how I would still, and you can, and you can tell me if I'm totally off base here, but I would still encourage folks in those environments not to give up because you're obviously as a writer being hired for your skill set and your ability to see see gaps and fill those holes in in content that's already been written or in content that you've written and you're editing, right? And those are opportunities I think to say, "Oh, you know, here's the terminology, the phrasing we used in this portion of this course isn't necessarily inclusive," for example. Or, "Hey, you know, boss, I just read about this new study that talks about a new therapeutic for interstitial cystitis, for example, or choose any number of gynecologic or women's health condition. What do you think, boss, about me including a mention of this in this content? And having that collaborative discussion, I think, with the people in charge, if you will. Because (laughs) in my experience, whenever I've brought something like this up to a client, a lot of generally, nine times out of 10, the response is, oh, I hadn't thought about that. I'm glad you brought that up. Sometimes it won't be. But I think many times the gaps that are left in terms of gender inclusive care and sex inclusive care aren't always intentional, but they're just simply some things that weren't on that person's radar, whether it's an ethnic disparity or a gender or sex orientation disparity, whatever it is, wasn't at the top of their mind. So wasn't, they didn't think to include it in a brief. And you might be the person sitting there talking with your collaborators that says, ah, should we touch on this? Does that, does that make sense? I don't know how realistic that is. No, I, I love that for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, it sees writers as, as strategists. And I think this is a difficult thing for some writers to see themselves as because they're used to, to, you know, following the brief Mm -hmm. and doing all the 
close to the content labor that is necessary in order to you know get things out the door but i think increasingly particularly in cme as as the the field shifts and i think it is shifting writers do need to see themselves as as strategists as the people who because yeah. they are closest to the content they are able to bring those types of suggestions to the team that they're working with whether they're working as an employee or whether they're wor- working as as freelancers so that's the first thing and i'm really glad that you said that the yeah. second thing is that requires especially if we're talking about inclusive language and equitable language that actually requires self-education and so i'm wondering what type of resources you recommend to writers to help them get up to speed in in what inclusive and equitable language means yeah. in this particular context that's a that's a great question i think there's a couple ways to go about it and it, it sort of depends on each person's bent and their and their preference but i know that for example amwa uh, the american medical writers association just a few months ago i think this summer released a, a, sh- a very simple continuing education course that i have filed in my my to-dos on inclusive language and medical writing um i believe it was crystal heron that released that or that did that course i think it's her course yeah, yeah. so that starting with something that simple her course is just an hour it's a quick lunch and learn format. But simple things like that can introduce you to terminology so that if you're someone that has never heard the term BIPOC, or you're not someone who's never heard gender expansive or some of these other terms, and they make you nervous, that's a way to just kind of dip your toe in and say, okay, I've heard that term. I know to keep that on my on my radar. And then I think another, especially if you're newer to this, if you have the potential to work with a health equity consultant, if there's one at the firm where you're at, or You've networked with one at LinkedIn, someone that you can bounce ideas off of. Of course, being mindful not to to take their time away from them, you know, and, and not asking more than you can give. Getting someone's input who does this day in and day out can help you learn so much. And that's how I've learned a lot is talking to people who either have lived the experience or work in the area of health equity. And then in terms of self-education, I think as writers, we're, we're inher- we inherently like to read and learn. And sometimes though, you know, if I spend all day in front of a computer writing or in front of a computer researching, I don't want to read another journal article. My brain is yeah. tired. I need something a little lighter. And in those cases, that information does exist. It's written in a more digestible format, <laughs> but still includes a lot of relevant data. So a couple recommendations. Uh, the book Sex Matters is excellent. It's written by a emergency room physician who specializes in sex equity and gender equity in medicine. And that includes a lot of broad view of how female versus male sex impact medical outcomes. And then there's another book, Invisible Women. I'm forgetting the subtitle, but it's related to something like how women's women are affected in a world, women's data is affected in a world driven by men. Something along those lines. Oh, I know the book you mean. Caroline yes. Perez, yeah. the author. Yeah. yeah. So the, those are more specific to the to the women's case, but most of them, mm-hmm. many books like that do touch on the individual uh, specific cases for queer folks as well. So mm-hmm. including some content like that in your light reading, if you will, or your bedtime reading can be another good way to just, you know, absorb some of this language biosmosis because you're seeing it and reading it all the time. And then it becomes more natural to use and comes natural to say, oh, yeah, women 
and people with uteruses, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And it just flows mm-hmm. more easily the more it's mm-hmm. in your milieu, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I'll be sure to you know, link to those texts yeah. in, in the show notes. And I, I'm already thinking, okay, there's a potential for a fabulous reading list here. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> you know, I like reading lists and uh, photographs of books on my, my nightstand. Yeah. This episode of Right Medicine is brought to you by Right CME Pro, a professional development membership that provides skills and scaffolding for medical writers who want to create CME content with confidence. Right CME Pro gives you access to expert perspectives to help you build your CME writing skills, a portfolio accelerator to hold space so that you can create stunning samples to show your prospects group coaching to help you build foundational and expert knowledge in CME, and much, much more. Write CME Pro is a professional development membership for people like you who are ready to launch and grow a specialized CME medical writing niche. See the link in the show notes for more information about how to enroll. But of course, it's not just language. Totally. It's, it's the actual research itself and the ways in which biological sex can actually make a difference to yeah. disease course, to the natural history of disease yeah. and so on, as well as the lived experience. And so that makes me think, okay, that's not so much, and uh, tell me what you think about this. That's not so much a language or, you know, getting to grips with how something is talked about, that actually requires a mindset shift in terms of when I am doing research on disease X, I also need to be thinking about the different ways in which the patients who have this condition might be experiencing Mm -hmm. symptoms. And that's, that could be women. It could be, you know, for instance, in breast cancer, we know that the experience is very different for African American women. And so, yeah, how do you, how do you approach that? There's been some public discourse on that topic in, you know, the, the Journal of the American Medical Association, mm-hmm. I think published a couple of papers last year and in 2022. So yeah, what, what, what's your thinking there? Yeah, that's, that's such a challenge because it is so easy to get lost in the weeds and to get too specific, I think, or not specific enough. And I, I think. So for me, with with a clinical background, I think of approaching research in, at least when I'm doing it in terms of, okay, how can I help a, this patient or this patient population? I try to narrow down my research to as close to that population as I can get. So if I'm looking at uh, white women aged 20 to 40 in a medium socioeconomic status or of a medium socioeconomic status, I'm going to search for those parameters and dial down things as much as I can. But when we're writing for a broad audience, we can't necessarily be that specific because our audience could include people of all different ethnic and racial backgrounds, different ages, different identities, different geographic locations, right? So I think, and a lot of times the data doesn't exist too, right? If I were to search XYZ condition in that population I just said, I might get, I don't know, Two, re- two results on PubMed if I'm lucky. So I think acknowledging where the, the gaps are is very important in how we present the data to our readers. 
a lot of the writing I do is very patient facing and it's, so it's put in lay language, mm. but this applies also to people that are writing more high science and, and writing for a scientific or provider audience as well, because your average busy medical provider who's going through your content quickly, either at a course or on their own, they want to see the salient, salient points. And if they see yeah. this treatment can help people with endometriosis, reduce pelvic pain by 50%, They'll go, oh, great. I'm going to use that with everybody. But they might have missed, oh, we only tested this we hope. in Asian women. Or <laughs> exactly. Right. So, right, right. Yeah. I think being very clear about that and not just making it a footnote, if a patient population was very specific, it needs to be obvious in the way that we present it to say, hey, this is promising, but it's only been checked in a very small subset. So if you don't work with this subset, apply with caution. It needs to be short and concise for a busy provider, but it needs to be acknowledged. So we don't mm -hmm. assume, ah, I can just take this back into clinic and use it for everybody. Yeah. Does that answer the question? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, I, I love that advice. It's very, it's very granular. You mentioned femtech. Tell us what that is and yeah. why it's important. <laughs> Great question. So the term femtech was coined, because I think, in the early, early aughts, maybe in the 2010s, by Ida Tin, who's a, a femtech entrepreneur herself. Mm -hmm. It basically, the breath definition is broad, and it's kind of changing every day. But it applies to products and services and technologies that are trying to marry technology with addressing uh, female health conditions and health mm -hmm. concerns that affect predominantly or dis uh, disproportionately women and people with female reproductive tracts. A lot of times this gets really siloed down to reproductive medicine, like fertility, mm -hmm. pregnancy, postpartum. Sometimes it includes other stages of a, of a woman's life, like menopause. But a lot of times it's really focused on gynecology and obstetrics. But it's much more expansive than that. And that's becoming more widely recognized. So groups that work on autoimmune conditions are often billing themselves as femtech because we know that certain autoimmune conditions affect yeah. women disproportionately much more than, they, than people right. with uh, male anatomy. So it, it can encompass that whole sphere, but it's groups that are working to to merge out incoming technology of all different types with a solution for a women's health specific problem. What's your hope for providers who work in healthcare? And let me actually let me rephrase that question. Cuz I think it's I think it's a two a two-parter. There are two, you know, we need to see changes in research, we need to see changes in education, we need to see changes in practice. How do those things connect? Can I I'm really hopeful, and, I, and I, I tend to be more optimistic, I think, than pessimistic. And I always joke, I'm, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a luddite. I'm not opposed to technology, and I'm, a, I'm truly a, I'm truly a tech advocate in a lot of ways because I've seen the way that technology can enable improvement. But I also am cautious, and I, I have a provider's training, so I tend to approach things very systematically. I want to see the data. I want to prove that something is safe and and effective before I go out applying it willy-nilly. So one of my biggest hopes is that clinical care, medicine, and technology can come together in a more collaborative and less combative relationship, because I think there's a lot of pushback on both ends. Clinicians saying, oh, this isn't safe. I couldn't possibly consider using it. Or medical systems saying, ah, we don't have the way to integrate this tech. And then tech companies saying, bloody clinicians, they're so, they're, they're so, so backwards and they refuse to bring tech into practice and they refuse to innovate. 
And that's not necessarily the case. It's just that bridging this gap between the two is so challenging. So that's one hope I have is that we continue to bridge that gap and see each other as collaborators rather than adversaries. And my other hope is that as part of this process, as, as tech becomes more and more involved in healthcare, is that it facilitates the way we educate providers so that people like me can receive education that is inclusive, sex-informed, gender-informed, racially and ethnically sensitive in our entry-level education so that we don't have to necessarily, though we should be continually improving and learning more so that we don't have to feel like we have a massive gaping hole in our training that we then have to fill backfill, but that this education becomes more and more prevalent from the beginning so that we're thinking about it from our nascent stages as providers and reminding ourselves continually, I need to keep up on this. I need to keep thinking about this. And it's not an afterthought anymore. But I do have another question, sure. which is when we're talking about femtech, what kind of tech are we talking about? Like I said earlier, the field is growing and it's including more than I think people think of generally as women's health issues. But I can give you a mm-hmm. couple examples. So a common one that people might think of, period tracking apps, menstrual trackers, and more commonly, they're becoming more known as hormone trackers because not everyone who has who has the potential to menstruate does, either because they have a medical condition or they have an IUD or they have had, you know, a uterus removed. So apps like this that help people better understand their hormonal cycles are very common. Companies that are working in the fertility space is another very common one. But when we expand beyond that, we're looking at companies that are using, for example, using AI to help predict a woman's risk of maternal hemorrhage. What's the risk of her hemorrhaging after giving birth? Or what is the risk of her developing heart disease because of her family Mm -hmm. history and her ethnic background and many other factors? And might that be higher than her male relatives? So there are groups working on this and, and integrating that. There are other companies. So one that I'm working with currently is working on creating a platform that interfaces with EMR to help clinicians, sorry, with electronic medical records, EMR, Mm. to help clinicians better diagnose and treat patients with endometriosis, that condition we were talking about that's so hard to diagnose. So they have a patient-facing app and a provider portal that integrate. So that's another example. There are biofeedback-enabled devices, wearable devices that people can wear that can allow their physicians to remotely monitor them, if with their permission, of course, to monitor their improvement for the patient themselves to see their progress over time in whatever area they're working in. So the field is massive. (laughs) So it doesn't really answer your question, but those are some examples of the areas in which femtech is growing and helping to improve the lives of people with, with female anatomy. Yeah. No, that's that's actually really, really helpful because it does kind of show that the femtech ecosystem is wider than, yeah. you know, it's beyond reproduction. It's not just and fertility care. an important yeah. point for, <laughs> yeah. yeah, for people to, to kind of understand. Anything that we haven't covered that you would want to share with Right Medicine listeners that, you know, I haven't specifically asked you about? No, I mean, we really covered a lot of ground. I think that point that I just made there at the end is how where I'd want to leave people is even if you don't feel like you know, even if you're, you know, I'm, I'm a great example. I don't identify as queer, but I do identify as a queer ally. And I have 
a lot of passion for this community because of the patients I've worked with in this community and because of the disparities I've seen. And I thought a lot about, you know, do I market myself or do I, do I advertise myself as someone who works in LGBTQ plus health? And am I allowed to, right? Because I'm not a queer person or I don't oh, identify yeah. as queer. That's a great point. And I, and I decided ultimately I do because I care so much and I want to see change there so much. And we can't have enough hands making changes in this area. So even if you are male or even if you are someone who doesn't necessarily think about gender and sex all the time, it doesn't necessarily preclude you from becoming part of the conversation and doesn't necessarily mean that someone is going to immediately police you for trying because I think the average person, I, I have a lot of faith in humans. <laughs> Maybe it's not always <laughs> correct, but I think the average good human is going to recognize that you are trying to be more inclusive and you're trying to make change in a, in a world in healthcare and medicine that is slow to change. And they're going to be grateful for that. And if you're open and willing to take critique and advice and learn and evolve, you're going to open up so many areas for yourself as a writer as an advocate, as a, as a healthcare innovator that I think would otherwise be closed if you didn't take, take the leap and take the jump into that space. So that's what I think I'd, I'd encourage people to think about. Caitlin Tyvey, femtech pioneer, medical writer, physical therapist, and women's and queer health advocate. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and insights with listeners of Right Medicine. The key takeaway for me in today's episode is a renewed awareness of the lack of focus on women's and LGBTQ plus health in research, education, and medical practice, which can lead to inequities in patient care. As CME CPD professionals, we have the potential to drive change and fill gaps in education at the very least by using inclusive language to address the specific needs of diverse patient populations in the education content we create, but also by identifying gaps in awareness and practice that education can address. So how can you implement what you heard in today's episode? First, educate yourself on how to use inclusive language in CME and CPD. Consider enrolling in Redwood Inc.'s free course on inclusive language or reading resources like Sex Matters and Invisible Women. I'll be adding these books not only to my reading list, but also to the CME and CE Professionals Inclusion Toolkit. There's a link to that in the show notes. Second, we can engage in conversations with supervisors, peers and others to advocate for inclusive language and gender-inclusive care in CME content and to identify gaps in how CME addresses women's health, LGBTQ plus health and the health of marginalised groups. And third, we can explore opportunities to include information about gender and sex-inclusive care in CME activities when appropriate and contribute to creating a more comprehensive and inclusive healthcare education landscape. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. Next up on Right Medicine, we talk to Eleanor Steele, also known as Medcom's mentor, about things to think about if you're trying to break into medical communications in general. This conversation with Eleanor is episode 102 of Write Medicine and is part of our First Friday series, which profiles medical writers and how they have broken into the field. 
It's also the last episode of Season 7. We'll be taking a break in March and returning with the podcast on April the 1st with an episode of Monday Mentor. Until then, stay connected with me on LinkedIn. And if you'd like additional support from me, there are several ways to get this. Download the right CME roadmap if you don't already have it. Grab Ready Steady CME, which is an audio accelerator designed to help you fast track your entry into the CME and CPD field. If you prefer to work with me one on one, you can sign up for coaching. And of course, you can always join Right CME Pro for ongoing professional development. All the links are in the show notes. Until next time, go gently.